We're going to be continuing in 1 Peter today, so if you've got your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter 4. We'll be there very shortly. The past few weeks, as we've preached through 1 Peter 3, we've been presented with the Grand Canyon of Christ's victory on the cross over sin. His victorious suffering shouts freedom for all of us. And Jim, in his communion slot, read 1 Peter 3, 18. Listen to this glorious truth. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I mention this to you because I want you to bring all of 1 Peter 3 with you to 1 Peter 4. What we have in this passage is Peter's therefore. In light of all that Christ has done for us, here is the therefore. We keep the Grand Canyon in view, but we answer the question in this text, what difference should that Grand Canyon make in our lives today? Okay, so let's read 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Pray with me, please. Father, as we come to this passage, to your word, would we come convicted in our own minds that this word is from you. And so we come listening. We come with open hearts. And we pray that your spirit would be active in me and in the listener, that we all, including myself, would be more like Jesus as a result of this next 30 minutes or so. Lord, do it for your glory as you grow and sanctify your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we break into Peter's argument, I want to answer a few questions that the text kind of raises. There's a few phrases that present challenges exegetically, so I just want to answer them real quick, and then we'll jump into Peter's argument. And the first is in verse 1, where he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this does not mean that they no longer sin. If we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, which we ought to do, it simply doesn't allow for that interpretation. 
It also is not likely, as some might argue, a reference to Christ who suffered and is therefore done with sin or has ceased from sin because he's had victory over it. Most likely, what's being spoken about here is a commentary on the reality of the Christian life. We once rejoiced in our sin. We relished it. But now, in Christ, we're done with that way of living. That's not our orientation. We flee from that. We don't relish that. We have ceased from it. The second problem we find at the end of this passage in verse 6, where it says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, the various attempts made at interpreting this, the most likely one relates to a very common problem in the first century church. We see it in a lot of the epistles. They were living expecting the immediate return of Christ. And as they waited, as Christ tarried, as he waited, as they waited for Jesus, some in their church were dying. And the the question was a burden throughout the church, have they missed out? Were they actually saved? And so Peter here is saying, no, no, no. Even to those who were dead, as the gospel was preached to them, they will live in the Spirit as God is. It's an assurance to us that if we die before the coming of Christ, we're secure in the hand of Jesus. Okay, so with those two problems kind of clarified We're going to walk our way through the text, and we're going to answer that question, what difference should Christ's suffering and victory make in our lives now? Look at the very beginning of verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. This is his short way of summarizing a whole lot of truth. He's capturing all that we've learned in the past several sermons, all from 1 Peter 3. Christ is wildly victorious. Sin is summarily defeated. Christ is to be honored in and above all things. And in the glow of those truths, Peter gives us in this passage five commands, five instructions or imperatives that Christians are to follow as Christ's suffering clears the path in front of us, as Christ's victory empowers us for everything he's called us to do. And those five commands are going to be our five points. So let's jump into point number one. Arm yourselves. Verse one says it pretty straightforwardly. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now none of us will ever suffer exactly as Christ did, sinlessly, innocently, and for the forgiveness of sins for all mankind. We're not gonna suffer like that. But friends, we are called here to be willing to suffer for righteousness. We're called even more than that. We're called to suffer well when we are persecuted. And Peter tells us how, by having the same mind as Christ, which is only helpful if we know what the mind of Christ was. So let's jump into that. What was the mind of Christ? We get glimpses throughout the New Testament. 
We can trace it through some stories that we read, but there are a few passages that address it directly, and here's one of them, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then we get a good glimpse. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What do we learn here? That the mind of Christ was humble and submitted to the will of God. Look at Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, here's the glimpse of his mind, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what do we learn from that? That Christ's mind was focused on the eternal. Let's put them together, okay? The mind of Christ was humble and focused on the eternal. It says right there in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him. Let's ask ourselves the question, what was it that was before him? It was the cross. There's no joy in the cross. There's pain. There's suffering. There's merciless suffocation awaiting him on the cross. But that's only if his mind was focused on the temporal, if his mind was focused on what his eyes could see. Jesus looked further. He looked through the suffering to the eternal. And from that vantage point, the cross was not primarily an instrument of punishment and torture. It was not just a place of suffering. No, with his mind on the eternal, the cross was a place of victory. It was a launching place for liberty for all of us. Through the cross, Jesus saw through it that the will of God was going to be achieved. Pastor J.H. Jowett summarizes the mind of Christ in this phrase, listen, as the preference and the predominance of the eternal. The preference and the predominance of the eternal. And then he says beautifully, this is exhortation to us, when the eternal rules the temporal, when the remotely glorious is preferred before the immediately bewitching, when suffering is chosen before the violation of the moral and spiritual ideal, the soul is already wearing the crown of the sinless life. Friends, this is how we arm ourselves for suffering. This is how we conduct ourselves in the Christian life. And in that one sentence from Jowett, he, he captures what Peter means when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's not that we don't sin. 
It's that we no longer live for sin. Armed with the mind of Christ, the Spirit-filled believer lives for the eternal. The world can reach the temporal. It can twist the temporal. It can take the temporal away from you. The world can't touch the eternal. Suffering cannot touch the eternal. Just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, the believers motivated by the promised destination of the celestial city. And with that city in view, the trappings of this world pale in comparison. So how do we avoid the trappings of this world? We keep our eyes focused. Just like Christ's mind was focused, we stay focused on the eternal. So let me ask you, are you aware of things in your life that draw your minds from the eternal to the temporal? Name them in your own heart right now. If you're not sure where to find them, among other places, you'll find them just beneath your anxieties and your worries. You'll find them underneath your anger and your unfulfilled dreams. You're going to find these things that draw our minds from the eternal to the temporal in your entertainment excesses. These things distract us from the mind of Christ and they rob us of the power we need to endure suffering to the glory of God. Our success in suffering will be determined by how completely the eternal occupies our minds. When we're armed as Christ was armed, with the preference and the predominance of the eternal, we join Luther in saying, and you know it, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, see all that's the temporal, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. That's the focus of the mind of Christ, is on the eternal. We're called to arm ourselves this way. That's just the first point. Point number two, live for God. He, Peter here provides the goal of arming ourselves. Look at verse two, please. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now the rest of the time in the flesh means the remainder of our lives. For as long as we continue to live in this mortal flesh, we are to live for the will of God, not for human passions. And this would be the outcome if we consistently did point number one. If we consistently have our eyes on the eternal, keep our mind focused on the eternal, we will be living our life for God. But realistically, we tend to vacillate between the temporal and the eternal. When we're living for the temporal, by default, we are living for human passions. Our New Year's resolutions wear down, and they give way to the weight of our fleshly desires, of our human passions. 
Yet when we live for the eternal, human passions have nothing to offer us because they can't get us where we want to go. Only God can get us there. And so armed with the mind of Christ, we live for the will of God. You know, picture a farmer tilling his fields. They keep their minds fixed, their eyes fixed on one place. And as they walk to that one place or ride to that one place, they till a very straight line. There's a singular focus for that farmer that results in a straight line. And for the Christian, we need to have that singular object in view as well. Our signpost is eternity. Our means of getting there is daily, moment by moment, living for God's will. But we've got to be honest with ourselves, and we've got to track the work of the enemy. There's great temptation to add something to this singular focus. There's so much temptation to add living for God and. Now you fill in the blank. I'm going to fill in a few here. Living for God and work. Living for God and money. Living for God and politics. Living for God and love. Living for God and the health of my child. Living for God and the salvation of my loved one. I want to tell you, whatever follows the word and in your life is likely your greatest danger in drifting from the will of God. Why? Because whatever follows and distracts us. It divides our heart. The and weakens the singular focus on God. It weakens our resolve and it appeals to our human passions. It causes us to till our fields in very crooked and confused lines because we lack focus. We take our eyes off of the eternal. This is why Hebrews 12 calls us to throw off every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Whatever follows and makes it difficult for us to suffer well for Christ's sake. You remember the rich young ruler, don't you? He wanted to live for God and money. When Jesus told him there was only one thing to live for, the rich young ruler clutched his money and laid down God. The appeal to our human passions is so present, it's so immediate, it draws our eyes from God to us. We become central in our thinking. Our priorities rise up and they, they, they rival the priorities of God. And we need to break, friends. We need to break from our obsession of living for our will. Nancy Walgamuth says really beautifully, to know God, to live in his presence, and to be occupied with a vision of his holiness 
is to know how foolish and frail we are apart from him and to be broken from a preoccupation with ourselves. Your ability to suffer well will hang on whether you're living for Christ alone or for Christ and. Number three, leave your sin. Look at verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I love that phrase, the time that is past suffices. Essentially, Peter's saying we've spent more than enough time living for sin. That time is behind us. Our life in Christ leaves no room for entertaining our favorite pet little sins. Peter says, we've done quite enough of that. Thank you very much. But Rob, you may say, doesn't Jesus forgive us for those sins? I want to suggest that's the wrong question. Let me ask you one. Doesn't Jesus call us to leave those sins behind? Are we not called to leave our selfish orientation and live for Christ? Brothers and sisters, we're called not only to forsake the big ones, but to forsake living for sin altogether. If the power to suffer well is the mind like Christ's, and the purpose in suffering well is to live for God's will, then we've got to throw off everything that's dragging on us the big and the little alike. C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliant book. I hope most of you, if not all of you, have read it. It's called The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape is an experienced, it's a work of fiction, by the way. Screwtape, you need to know that before my next sentence. Screwtape is an experienced demon who is training his nephew Wormwood how to serve their master, the devil. So in this book, heroes and villains are all kind of backwards. The enemy throughout the book is when they're talking about God. Okay, so it's kind of all backwards. Wormwood is upset that the guy he's tempting is only committing small, acceptable sins. Here's Screwtape's response to that. You will say that these are very small sins and doubtless like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. Now, the enemy's God, remember. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Small and gradual is fine 
with the devil. So we must not tolerate any pattern of sin in our lives. Any pattern of tolerated sin, as comfortable or acceptable as it may be, will separate you from the light and send you into nothing. So let me ask you, have you cut yourself too much slack regarding what you put in front of your eyes? Maybe on television, on your phone, on your computer? Have you given allowance for your speech to become gossip or slander or unkind? Have you fed division and enmity between you and a member of this church? Are you tolerating brokenness in the relationships in your own home? Remember, folks, murder is, as, is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Covenant Fellowship, today, right now, let's resolve to leave the sin we've tolerated, the sins we've embraced, and let's do what's needed to make it right so that we can be living for the will of God and leave the sin behind. Number four, expect persecution. Look at verse four. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now what's in view here? This is the teen Christian who chooses not to engage in foul language and, jo and coarse joking in the cafeteria. This is the working Christian who will not cut corners even if everyone else at work is doing it. This is the Christian friend who in friendly conversation refuses to belittle his or her spouse. This is the Christian college student who refuses to gawk at or objectify a person of the opposite sex. This is the Christian who is persecuted for doing the right thing. When we live with the Savior's mindset for the will of God, purposing to leave our sin behind us, the world will not understand. They won't get it. Our motivation doesn't register on them. We're going to be the odd one in any setting when we're with the world, and we will be mocked or judged. We may be the one that doesn't get invited to after-work outings. Or worse, we may be hated and wrongly accused by the maligning world. But don't forget that Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. High schooler, if you are going to live for God, expect persecution at school. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. College student, if you're going to live for God on campus, expect persecution. 
Do not be surprised at it, but rejoice. And Christians of all ages, we should expect persecution. Jesus himself said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Gerald Sitzer, an author, gives us this exhortation, church. Please listen. We, therefore, cannot escape struggle, nor should we try. Rather, we should embrace it as one aspect of our calling to discipleship. For the goal of life in this world is not ease, prosperity, and success, but intimacy with God, maturity of character, and influence in this world. Don't underestimate the influence you can have by living for God and accepting the persecution that comes your way. Don't underestimate it. It will not only mature your character, it will speak loudly of the gospel that you believe. I came to Christ because of a brother who was living just like this. He was maligned mercilessly at work. I maligned him mercilessly at work. How he responded to the treatment of his co-workers piqued my curiosity. I was saved two weeks later as that man preached the gospel that fueled his suffering well. Don't underestimate the effect that living for God in a dark and dying world can have. Not only will it grow you, it may provide wonderful opportunities for you to share the hope that is within you. Which takes us to number five, trust in God. Look at verses five and six. But they, those who malign you, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that, through, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Church, we do not have to revile in turn when we are reviled against. We don't have to seek vengeance. We don't have to get even. Verse 5 assures us that God will take care of judging the living and the dead. We don't have to worry about those who have died already. God will judge the living and the dead with justice and righteousness and grace. How do we now, as we go to work, as we go to school, how do we now live with such a trust in God that we can entrust these things to Him? How do we develop a trust that is so sure that it keeps us from anxiety and fear? How do we develop a confidence so certain that we release all vengeful impulses to his wise hand? How do we do that? Well, we go back to the beginning of this message. We arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We live singularly for the will of God. We leave our sin behind we trust God to work out justice in eternity 
releasing the demand we often place on him for injustice to be handled right now. And we throw ourselves entirely upon the goodness and the righteousness of God. Friends, today, I want us to take up this task of arming ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ employed. The passage is calling us to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, a preference and predominance of the eternal. The gospel paves the way for us. The Spirit guides our steps. And we have brothers and sisters throughout the church to keep us encouraged and to put us back in play, to bind us up and to encourage us to keep pressing on. So let's discuss this amongst our friends and our community groups. Let's encourage one another, spurring each other on to love and good deeds as long as it's called today. And let's be thankful, ever, ever thankful for all that Christ won for us in his suffering. Listen, on the cross, undeniably, the devil struck his heel. But Jesus crushed his head. And he did that to crush the chains that bound us to living for sin. And in light of that, this passage and all the implications of the gospel call us to live like freed people, armed with the mind of Christ, living for the will of God. Amen.